Hello everyone, this is Sarah from The Journey and welcome to The Weekly. Now, I don't know about you, but I never seem to have quite enough hours in the day to fit everything in and I certainly don't seem to have enough hours in the day to read all the interesting things that are out there. We thought we probably weren't alone in this, so we created The Weekly, which is a condensed version of all the key things we've been looking at over the last week or so in an easy digestible podcast form that you can listen to on the go. Now, you might be wondering, if you're new to us, what even is the journey? Well, we are dedicated to bringing you the latest science and evidence-based research around everything to do with conception, pregnancy, and the early years of a little person's life. The reality is, as the world looks very different from the one that existed even just 10, 15 years ago, but in many cases, the advice we're given hasn't changed. There's a lot of fake news out there as well, so we're dedicated to bringing you practical things you can do, most crucially, all backed by science. So, without further ado, what is on offer this week? Okay, so what's on the docket this week? Well, first up, we're going to be looking at something that's known as the vampire hormone. Uh, It's not as bad as it sounds, it's melatonin. And the reason it's called the vampire hormone is because it comes out at night. You probably know it in relation to sleep. But did you know that it's also really important when it comes to preserving our egg quality, something that naturally declines as we age? Now, we're going to be looking at what this hormone does, why it's so important for our eggs, and most importantly, what modern life is doing to push this off and what we can do to combat that. Next up, we're going to be looking at milk supply. Now, 50% of women report that they give up breastfeeding before their end goal. One of the main reasons for this, and it's something I also struggled with, is low milk supply. So we're going to be looking at the science behind that and once again, practical things you can do in order to tackle this. Next up, the tantrum. Now, did you know that when you look at a tantrum on a scientific basis and what's going on in a toddler's brain, actually what you'll learn is that although these things are very painful at the time, they're actually a really important part of brain development. So we're going to be unpicking this and we hope that the things that you'll learn will really help you cope with the next tantrum that your little one throws. Finally, we are going to be summarising a pretty epic um, interview we did with one of the global leading experts on paediatric allergy and food allergy specifically, Professor Gideon Lack. We're going to be going through the key points from our discussion with him and most importantly, what you can do, what what the science suggests you should do in order to prevent allergies developing in your little ones. So without further ado, let's kick off. Okay, so let's start off with egg quality, and specifically egg quality in relation to the sleep hormone, melatonin. Now, did you know that there's now as much as a two-hour difference on average in terms of the amount we sleep versus those who lived around 50 to 100 years ago? I guess it makes sense when you think about our modern lifestyles, but the research is showing that a third of us, or up to, now sleep less than six hours a night. Now, of course, there are many issues with this, but one of them is that melatonin, which is known as the sleep hormone, has been shown to have an impact on our egg quality and not having enough is not a good thing. Now, before you switch off and think, yeah, yeah, I know I should get more sleep, but I've got a job, social life, child, all three, etc. There is a bit more to this than meets the eye. Now, let's take a step back. 
So science doesn't fully understand sleep entirely, but we do recognise increasingly that the hormone or neurotransmitter melatonin, which induces sleep, is actually important for things other than sleep. In fact, it is known to be a very potent antioxidant. It is also now increasingly being recognised as mattering for our egg quality. So we're just going to go through this about why exactly this matters and most importantly, what you can do to help give this a bit of a natural boost. So thinking about egg quality, full stop, it turns out that when it comes to our eggs, both quality and quantity matter. And unfortunately, as we get older, both naturally decline. Now, why does this actually happen? What is behind this decline? Now, the main reason science is pointing to is something known as oxidative stress. Now, we write a lot about this on the site, but mainly what you need to know is this is damage to the powerhouse of the egg itself or the cell, the mitochondria. And this naturally increases as we age. So the question is, is there a way to reduce this damage that occurs naturally? Now, you've probably heard of something called antioxidants. These basically reduce the risk of damage that can happen to cells. And research has been showing that antioxidants, including CoQ10, which again we talk a lot about on the site, and the sleep hormone melatonin, have shown anti-aging effects on mouse eggs in particular by reducing this oxidative stress which happens during reproductive aging. In fact, one research paper said that melatonin acts like a natural guardian of the follicle, which is an immature egg, and this really sums up a lot of what um, the interest is in melatonin. So the question is, we get that we want more, but where does it actually come from? Now, melatonin is produced within the body by the pineal gland. It is the sleep hormone, as we've said, so you can probably imagine it comes out as night, which is actually why some people call it the vampire hormone. True story. It's cyclical, has its own circadian rhythm, as you'd imagine. So this cycle of coming out at night and then dropping off as we go into the morning repeats within a 24-hour period. And the question is, what causes the body to produce more or less of this? Now, what research has found is that the key factor is exposure to the cycles of light and darkness, something that our modern lives have clearly distorted with our exposure to blue light from TVs, iPads, smartphone use at all hours of the day, and of course, you know, artificial light generally as well. Now, we know that bright and artificial light inhibits the release of melatonin in the body. We also know that blue light is the worst culprit for this. We actually have a whole separate piece on this on the site, and especially how this interferes with babies and the build-up of their own circadian sleep rhythm. But essentially, though, this is what comes out of our phones and tablets, and we all know we use these far too much. Now, a normal functioning cycle would be melatonin production beginning in the evening as the light naturally starts to dim, and then it should reach a maximum point between 2 to 4 a.m., and that follows a slow reaction, sorry, slow reduction to lower daytime levels. Now, what are the other factors that can impact melatonin production? So, of course, if we're distorting light and dark cycles, like working night shifts, that's going to have a real issue. Secondly, being overweight has been linked to um, distortion of melatonin production. And both of these things have been linked to all kinds of complications for our reproductive health. And actually applies to men as well. And again, we've got a lot more on the site about that. So the other thing is, is unfortunately our melatonin production also diminishes as we age. Um, so question is, how do you get more of it?
Now, as usual, there's only one reason we talk about anything on the site, and that's only because there is something that we can do about it in a positive way. And the good news on this front is it's something you really can easily help along. Now, by far and away, the most powerful way is to prioritise healthy sleep, specifically by reducing blue and artificial light exposure in the evening. It may seem annoying and you've heard it a million times before, but when it comes to your reproductive health, the research su suggests that it really matters. So prioritising putting down your electronic equipment towards the end of the evening can really have a meaningful effect in terms of the production of the hormone that has shown consistent evidence of protecting our all-important eggs. So it's basic things like making sure you sleep in a dark room free of mobile devices and then during the day get lots of nice natural daylight exposure. Sometimes that's not easy when we're trapped in an office but actually making the effort to go outside, be in natural light as much as you can can really be helpful. Now what about food? Unfortunately the amount we can get from food is far less significant than the power of light. However if you do want to give a helping hand one friend to mention is something called tryptophan. This is basically a dietary amino acid, which is one of the core building blocks for melatonin production in the body. So where do you find it? Well, sources include salmon, eggs, poultry, spinach, nuts, seeds for the vegetarians out there. Now, what about melatonin supplements? Now, our resident um, expert, Mahantesh Karoshi, who's a consultant gynecologist and obstetrician, regularly uses melatonin supplements as a tool for women who are looking to preserve their eggs. So this may or may not be something worth discussing with your doctor. As usual, we always strongly advise consulting with your doctor before taking any supplements. And the reason is not because we're killjoys, but the market is pretty unregulated. There's varying quantities and doses out there. And this is especially important if you're taking any other medication. And we've got the six things that you should watch out for when taking any supplement up on the site. Now, research varies on dosage, but two to three milligrams per day has been cited in the research to show beneficial outcomes. So bottom line, your body is powerful at producing important hormones such as melatonin, which can naturally protect from damage to our eggs. But as usual, modern life gets in the way of it doing its job and can inadvertently impact our health. So the most simple and effective way is just to prioritize healthy sleep and try and adhere as much as possible to the natural cycles of light and dark and just exposing yourself to that. Just put your devices away for a couple of hours before bed. It's good for your mind, your body, your eggs, and your soul. If you do feel like you need a helping hand, then a supplement could be for you. Just ask your doctor. So the next topic is something that's personally very close to my own heart because it's something I really struggled with myself. We're going to be talking about the science behind increasing your milk supply. Now, of course, the majority of new mothers have the absolute best intentions when it comes to breastfeeding and everything, really. But it's not always easy for everyone. And in fact, the stats show that only about 50% of mothers reach their own personal breastfeeding goals. And in fact, below 20% of women manage to exclusively breastfeed for six months, which is the recommended uh, minimum time. Now, of course, we know there can be so many reasons behind why this happens. So it can be things like having to go back to work, tongue tie, latching issues. But physiologically, which is what we're going to be looking at with this, 
there can be other factors. And in fact, low supply is the most common reason why women give for stopping. So if milk production is such a problem, how can we increase supply? Now, there are lots of theories out there. However, as always, we want to turn to the science and evidence to see what other main factors, and particularly those that you can have an influence over. Now, the two most effective and evidence-backed ways are pretty well known, so you will know these. Um, feel free to ignore this part, but you've, it's things like the increasing the frequency of feeding and emptying the breast as much as possible to stimulate supply. So those are the two kind of widely accepted ways. And to give you an idea as to what that means, most breastfed newborns feed about 8 to 12 times a day. So it really does mean that if you want to be upping your supply, you've got to be pumping or feeding during the night as well. So not easy, but uh, doable. Now, what happens if you are doing all of this, but you're concerned that you still have low milk supply, as was the case for me? Now, one emerging section of research relates issues with production to insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance in our society, funnily enough, is becoming more and more common. Now, how does this work? What is insulin resistance and what can you do? So animal studies have shown evidence that having higher insulin levels in your blood, which is what happens when you start to have insulin resistance, can contribute to lower supply. Now, part of this is because insulin impacts the key lactation hormone, prolactin. It's also been shown to impact uh, in human studies in terms of the different layers within the milk that you produce, so particularly the milk fat layer. And finally, insulin has been shown to promote androgen production, i.e. testosterone, which, of course, has also been shown to limit milk supply. Now, coming back to insulin resistance, you may well have heard of this. It is something that's being talked about more and more as we have issues with diabetes in our society. But it's effectively when your cells do not react as they should to insulin. Insulin is there to let the sugar that's in your blood after you've eaten your food enter the cells to be used for energy. And when that is not working properly, you get more and more insulin produced to try and let that uh, energy in. You get this buildup um, and then you get high sugar levels in your blood and a whole host of issues. Now, as we said, this is something that is becoming more of an issue because of the way we live our lives. Um, and there are a few things that you can do um, to help combat this. Now, firstly, as you can imagine, having a BMI that is above normal is a real problem and contributing factor to things like insulin resistance. So first of all, you can talk to your doctor if you are concerned about your BMI being higher. Um, and particularly when you're going through your pregnancy, make sure that you speak to your doctor about putting on the right amount of weight. And again, this is absolutely not for vanity reasons. This is for health. Now, the other problem, and this is absolutely unrelated to weight, is um, PCOS, polycystic ovaries. Now, unfortunately for women with polycystic ovaries, around two-thirds, and as I said, regardless of weight, will have some form of insulin resistance. That being said, interestingly, research is not entirely conclusive around its impact on breastfeeding, but because of the insulin resistance inherent to many women with PCOS and the link to breast milk supply issues, there is evidence to suggest that women with PCOS may have a tougher time. 
And once again, it's back to these androgen levels, which is obviously some of the reasons why women with PCOS get the symptoms that they do. It's those impacting milk production in part. So what can you do, even if you have PCOS, to control your insulin levels and potentially help your milk supply? Now, once again, there are good things you can do here, so do not worry. First off, it's avoiding refined carbohydrates. You're probably sick of hearing this from every angle, but this really is important. So refined carbohydrates, so think anything processed and carby, so white bread, white pasta, white rice, and also too much fructose. So that's things found in syrups, high sugar fruits, table sugar. Now doing this and cutting back has shown very positive results in reducing insulin levels in the blood. Now, activity is the next one. Being active. Now, obviously, when you've just had a baby, getting on the treadmill is not the thing you're going to do, nor should you. Um, However, simply being active can mean taking walks. Sedentary lifestyles have been shown to be a big contributor to insulin resistance. And in fact, up on the site, we've got some helpful tips and tricks from our resident pre- and postnatal specialist, Natalie Ferris, who can tell you how to approach um, exercise post-baby. The other thing is, is we've got some stuff on the site about exercise and breastfeeding. But as we said, you don't need to be doing aggressive exercise. Just simply getting up and about and taking a walk is a good start. Now, what you eat in milk supply is another big thing. There's two things to be aware of. There's quality and quantity. So when we look at the quality, increasing soluble fibre intake has shown to have benefits. So think things like black beans, for example as well as fatty and oily fish. Just remember to go low down the food chain with that. And again, it's about quality. So high quality fat, high quality protein intake, and ensuring the ratio of this to carbohydrates is right. So around 40% carbs, 20% fat, um, 40 uh, protein is a really good mix when it comes to fighting insulin resistance. And ideally, with the carbohydrates you do choose, focusing on those low glycemic index non-refined. So think things like starchy vegetables, whole grain bread, whole grain pasta, and avoid all these white processed carbs. Now, of course, thinking about your calorie intake and the quality of calories is the next thing. Now, research has shown that you need around 500 extra calories per day for breastfeeding. And if you want to dig into the science of that, there's more up on the site. But again, it's not about rushing to grab a McDonald's. It is about making sure your calorie intake is of high quality. So think healthy fats like avocado, oily fish, low GI carbohydrates, so oats, quinoa, lots of healthy lean protein. And that can be nuts. It can be organic meat, wild fish. The other thing is water consumption is hugely important when you're breastfeeding because actually a large chunk of breast milk is water. So making sure that you are well-fed, well-watered is a great way to go about it. Now, the next thing is what about supplements for milk supply? You may have heard of fenugreek is something that a lot of people talk about for stimulating breast milk production. Now, we are always a bit wary of herbal supplements as typically there's a big variance in the quality and amount that is Um, typically in various supplements because it's a pretty unregulated market and evidence-based research can be a little bit lacking. But we're going to go with what we do know. Now, drugs or supplements to stimulate breast milk supply are known as galatacoblogs. There are a couple of prescription drugs used currently. 
and the most common that are prescribed, um, you can talk to your doctor about. They are generally, however, used off-label, which means that this is not what they were originally intended or cleared to do from a regulatory standpoint. So therefore, it's a little bit questionable and there are questions remaining and not a lot of clarity on dosage. So it is something that you need to be a little bit careful of and you can only get through a doctor. Now, most people would prefer to go down the route of avoiding prescription drugs, particularly where there are questions about side effects and dosage. So fenugreek is something that is often cited. Now, question is, does it actually work? Now, based on current research, not a lot is known about the mechanism as to how it works. Now, one theory, which is quite interesting, is that fenugreek can stimulate the production of sweat, and the breast is a modified form of sweat gland, and therefore the theory goes that fenugreek might be able to stimulate the breast milks, uh, the breast to supply more milk. That being said, there is not a lot of evidence around this, though. Now, there have been some anecdotal reports of fenugreek really having an effect. So one study looked at 1,200 women and did show benefits 24 to 72 hours after consumption, but clearly more work needs to be done. Now, as we always say, but we'll say again, as with any supplement, it's imperative to talk to your doctor before you take it, especially if you're on any other medication, that, as this can potentially interfere with it. And actually, when it comes to fenugreek, be aware if you have clotting issues in particular. There are also some concerns that it can worsen asthma symptoms, so those with asthma should absolutely avoid it. But if in doubt, just have a conversation with your doctor. The other thing I will say, though, is fenugreek does have some other benefits that are in the literature. So it has shown to be a potent antioxidant. And some of the research has suggested that it's a positive contributor to weight loss and immune health. So it's definitely worth having an investigation of and certainly worth having a chat with your doctor about if you're concerned. So taking all of this together, what does science really suggest for breast milk supply? So really, to be honest, the conclusion isn't rocket science. Being as healthy as possible pre and during your pregnancy will help. So keeping a healthy BMI, keeping active, a diet away from highly processed refined foods, focusing on whole foods, plus a good intake of quality fats and protein. It really isn't rocket science. Now, calorie intake um, during breastfeeding is as important as is water. So studies suggest an extra 500 calories per day. And then there is some evidence behind fenugreek, but once again, talk to your doctor first. Now, the science really does back up frequency and emptying of the breast as much as possible. So we really do want to reiterate that, particularly as you're getting established um, in the first few weeks of breastfeeding. Now, there's a big caveat here. It is tough. Doing the night feeds, feeding eight to 12 times a day, is hard on a lot of people. So it does mean giving yourself the time and having the support to do this. Now, many women can find the early days very challenging. It's tiring, it's relentless, and hormones can be all over the place. And particularly worse is if you're struggling with breastfeeding or have any other issues. It is an emotional time. Um, and so it is important to ask for help and support and be kind to yourself during this time. It can be really overwhelming. And in fact, research has shown that biochemical changes associated with depression will also have an impact on your milk production. So please do not be afraid to ask for help. Now, we've actually put up on the site um, a link to lactation consultants because they're a really good idea if you're struggling. 
they're good at diagnosing issues like tongue tie, which we obviously haven't talked about, making sure your latch is right, which are easy things to get right. So please do check this out if you're struggling. Uh, and there are some common issues that really do need to be dealt directly with a professional. Now, we've got a link up on the site to Lactation Consultants of Great Britain, and there's a full comprehensive list from Kelly Mom in the US if you want to go for a reputable practitioner. So good luck. Okay, so next up is something that every parent of a small person, well, at least one from 18 months plus, will be very well aware of. And it's something that any parent-to-be will become also similarly well acquainted with. We are, of course, talking about the toddler tantrums. Now, tantrums are a fact of early life. And of course, they can be infuriating for everyone involved. But did you know that they are actually a positive part of a toddler's brain development? Yes. Now, whilst we're not a parenting resource and we do try and stay away from parenting and opinions, we are interested in anything that has to do with the health and development side of things, particularly when understanding it better can potentially help us deal with it better. So we're going to take a quick look at what's going on with tantrums and the science behind that. Hopefully, by understanding them a bit better, you might feel slightly better when your little, when your little one is having his or her next, next meltdown. And let's face it, we need all the help we can get on this. So let's start with the basics. So when we're born, we're born with billions of brain cells. However, you're not born with many brain cell connections. Now, these form over time and actually form based on your experiences. And we've actually got a more detailed piece from our resident psychotherapist, Christoph Sarawine, talking more about the formation of what's known as neural connectivity. But what you need to know is that a tantrum, which of course is an emotional experience, is actually part of the formation of these connections. So tantrums are a positive part of brain development. Well, of course, they're a normal part of development and they do typically start towards the end of the um, first year as the brain starts to reach a certain point of development and they should taper off before the fourth year. But the reality is, is that as many as 90% of toddlers aged between 30 and 36 months of age are having regular tantrums. Now, most of us rationally know that when a toddler is throwing a tantrum, it's because they feel their needs or wants are not being met in some way. And the reality is they feel like they can't communicate this. So it is pretty frustrating for them. Now, what exactly happens during a tantrum? Well, the strong emotions that go alongside a ten- temper tantrum trigger a genuine hormone release. And this is very similar to the release that you get with as an adult and during an intensely stressful period. The difference is, as an adult, the rational part of the brain, in theory, the prefrontal cortex, can hopefully regulate this. Um, and, and it regulate the part of the emotion that's coming from the more emotional side of the brain, the limbic system. Now, for a toddler, this regulation is not yet fully developed. Now, this will happen over time as they learn and as the brain develops. And actually having a tantrum is part of this growth and learning. So a toddler who is having an extreme emotional meltdown is not bad. They just do not have the tools to manage and regulate these emotions yet. And some research has shown that toddler anguish can even evoke physical pain. So you've got to feel for them. 
Now, how does the brain develop to cope and regulate these emotions? Now, as a toddler has more tantrums, more of the connection between brain cells form, and the formation of these can hopefully allow a child to properly manage stress and emotions later in life. In fact, there's been a lot of work over the years on things like attachment theory and brain development of children, and we've got much more on that on the site. But what we do know is that appropriate handling of temper tantrums can be a powerful tool in helping a child develop these all-important coping mechanisms to deal with stress in later life. So how can we help? Now, we want to stress, once again, we are not a parenting platform. We do tend to try and stay away from opinions on what parents should or shouldn't do. We all feel guilty enough. In this case, though, there is a biochemical part to play here, which is good to understand and be aware of. Now, a child is born with a fully formed, let's call it an alarm, in the brain which will react to perceived danger. This is called the amygdala. Now, this is a survival mechanism activated from birth. So any stressful uh, situation incites what's known as a fight or flight response, which triggers the release of things like cortisol. And that same thing happens in adults. Now, of course, as we said, a toddler does not really have the tools to cope with this rush of emotions. So as parents or caregivers, we need to help them along. Now, we've seen in many cases theories over the last few decades about the all-important power of touch. Physical touch and hugs can elicit a hormonal release of something called oxycotin, which calms the stress response in the body. So although sometimes you may not feel like giving a screaming toddler a hug, approaching a tantrum in a calm and kind manner can be one of the best ways to help them cope. Now, that being said, it does not mean you have to give in to what a toddler wants, which is not necessarily always the most reasonable demands. I know my son is regularly wanting chocolate before dinner, but standing around and showing firm, consistent, stable and calm boundaries is also key for positive development. It can, however, be done in a gentle and calm way. And in fact, the calmer you are, the better. Now, interestingly, research has shown that distraction is another powerful tool. And once again, we'll take a look at the science behind this. Now, we've seen a number of studies showing benefits when it comes to emotional regulation when a child uses distraction. In fact, one study showed a particular benefit when children were directly encouraged to use distraction. Now, one important caveat. Again, we tend to stay away from parenting advice and think there's far too much judgment of ourselves and others when it comes to raising small people. So this is simply some info to think about and digest. It's a tool. We can't handle tantrums perfectly every time. So don't beat yourself up if you don't have handle a toddler meltdown in exactly as the way you'd like. Trust me, there'll be another opportunity for you to do it better the next time. So bottom line is, when tantrums are managed carefully, they're actually a positive tool for enabling your child to develop positive ways to cope with emotional regulation and brain development. And simply understanding that your child is not yet equipped to regulate their emotion, helping them to deal with this via gentle touch and distraction are both positive, powerful science-backed tools for long-term development. So next time your child has a big one, remind yourself that it's all good. Good luck. We also want to remind people that no one handles things perfectly, least of all when it comes to tantrums. So this is simply some info to think about and digest. See it as a tool. We can't handle it perfectly every time, so don't beat yourself up if you don't handle a meltdown exactly as you'd like. And my bet is, is you'll get another opportunity to handle the next one differently. So bottom line, 
when tantrums are managed carefully, they are or can be a positive tool for enabling your child to develop positive ways to cope with emotional regulation and brain development. And understanding that your child is not yet equipped to regulate emotion and helping them deal with this and with ways such as gentle touch, distraction, powerful um, or can be for long-term development. So next time your child has a big one, remind yourself that it's all good and good luck. Okay, so this final piece is something we're pretty darn excited about. Now, here at The Journey, we've been pretty lucky to have the input of some of the leading thinkers and scientists of our generation. All, of course, in order to help us navigate the modern challenges of conception, pregnancy and early years. Now, the interview we did recently is no exception, and it's one we were extremely excited to do. So we are interviewing one of the leading global scientists and pioneers of allergy prevention, Professor Gideon Gideon Lack. So we asked him everything from what he thinks is behind the rise in food allergies to how our thinking about food allergy prevention is changing based on a lot of the pioneering research that he has been leading. Now, first, a little bit about Professor Lack so you can understand our absolute obsession with him. He is Professor of Paediatric Allergy at King's College London. He's head of the Clinic Academic Paediatric Allergy Service. He's also a consultant to the Sean Parker Allergy Centre and Stanford University. And most crucially, he's behind some of the leading trials that are reversing the way that we approach allergy prevention. Trials such as LEAP, which is learning early about peanut allergy, and more recently, EAT, which is inquiring about tolerance studies, have been released and have been fundamentally changing the global approach to preventing allergies. So bottom line, he's a pretty big deal. So we thought we would summarise some of the key points that came out of our discussion with him. Now, of course, for all the detail, check out up on the site. But let's start with the basics. We asked him, food allergies on the rise, true or false? Now, his point was, For sure, something like a peanut allergy has increased over time. This is not just better diagnosis. In fact, the numbers have gone up two to three times in some areas. And in fact, we're now in a situation where as many as eight to 10% of school children have a food allergy. So yes, it is a real issue. Egg and milk allergies are the two leading food allergies across the globe. But that being said, there are regional variations. Now, Professor Lack talks about something called the dual allergen hypothesis, and this will be explained in much more detail to come and is very crucial for this approach. Now, we asked him, what do you think is causing this rise in food allergies? His answer is, it cannot be explained by genetics alone because it has gone up so rapidly over a relatively short space of time. So in some ways, he argues, we must be responsible for it there is clearly some environmental component. Now, one thing we do see a lot more of is eczema. And we do also know that there is a clear link between eczema and the development of food allergies. In fact, as many as 80% of children with a food allergy have a history of eczema. So, eczema. Is this the first thing that we as parents should be watching out for? Now, this is actually where Professor Lack's dual allergen hypothesis comes in. Eczema, he says, is the first manifestation of what is known as the allergic march. And Professor Lack talks about studies that have linked the severity of the eczema with a greater chance of an allergy developing. So basically, in English, 
The more severe the eczema, the greater the chance of a food allergy developing. Now, interestingly, a study of over 2,000 children showed that the risk of egg, milk or peanut allergy was about twice as high if eczema was present in the first six months of life compared to if it comes out in the second six months of life. So what is the exact connection between development of a food allergy and eczema? So what we've seen is in various studies that allergic sensitization occurs after skin exposure. Now, particularly if the skin is inflamed or broken, which is exactly what it is when you have eczema. Basically, what happens is the allergen enters the body via this broken inflamed skin, even at a very low dose. And we're talking about doses that can come from uh, allergens present on tabletops, hands, even in dust. When these are able to penetrate the skin barrier, they're met by specific cells in the skin, leading to the production of a certain type of antibody by the immune system. And this is known as an immunoglobulin. Now, when the body produces these, this is when you get an allergic reaction. So the more vulnerable the skin, the higher the chance that the allergen can penetrate. Of course, the other route that you can get exposed to an allergen is via eating or drinking. Now, this is exactly where this dual connection comes in. Now, historically, the guidelines were to avoid ingestion of potential allergens, even as early as through pregnancy, but then through breastfeeding and in the first three years, depending on the allergen. The reality, however, is that there was actually very little evidence to support doing this. And in fact, since that practice has been in place, the incidence of allergies has only been rising. Now, Professor Lack's research suggests that the opposite is actually true. An early introduction of an allergen could be the best way to prevent its development. So the LEAP study and the more recent EAT trial suggest that by exposing a child to an allergen via the oral route at an early stage, so we're talking as young as three to four months, can lead to a much lower rate of allergy development. And the question is, how on earth does this work? So the dual allergen hypothesis in a nutshell suggests that the way and the timing that we're exposed to an allergen is really critical. So the research suggests that if broken or inflamed skin, as happens with eczema, is exposed even in a low dose to an allergen without also exposing through the mouth or the gastro tract, we are much more likely to get an allergy. Once again, how does this actually work though? Now, the difference between taking an allergen via the mouth or through the gastro tract versus the skin is that the gastrointestinal tract is surrounded by lymphoid tissue, which is part of the immune system. Now, the immune system learns very early on what to attack and what to tolerate. It learns to recognize, for example, its own tissue very early, which is pretty key for our survival. And exposure is actually crucial for the immune system to learn what is friend and what is foe. Put it this way, an analogy is this. If you do not expose a baby to light or to touch, studies have shown that it leads to a failure in the development of certain key areas. So it looks as though if you do not expose the immune system to potential allergens, there's a higher risk of it not coping appropriately. And this is where the perfect storm comes in. So the trouble is, when we have allergens in the environment, and then pregnant women and young babies avoid actually eating the allergen, this is when we get an immune or allergic reaction because it comes in through the skin, but there's no exposure and learning by the actual immune system around the gastro tract to go alongside with it. 
And then you add in the increase in eczema that's pretty prevalent in our society, which makes you more vulnerable, and you get quite a decent explanation for the high levels of food allergy we're seeing. Another example, actually, is the fact that we didn't see allergies to things like kiwi until they were introduced into our environment in the UK in the 70s and 80s. It's also why we see high incidence of things like peanut allergy in places where peanuts in the environment, but where pregnant women and children avoid eating them. So why are we seeing more eczema and which of course makes the route to allergy development so much more likely? Now, Professor Lack did say there are many potential causes and there's things like the hygiene hypothesis, which does not really explain the rise in food allergies, but does explain in part the development of eczema. Now the hygiene hypothesis is connected to many things and we've got um, a much more detailed look at that on the site but <clears throat> as you can imagine it's being too clean and alongside that there is some moderate link to having a c-section birth um, and of course part of that explanation is not being exposed to the bacteria through the birth canal but Professor Lack did really just say that it often starts as very dry skin and part of this and of course there are many reasons behind why we get it maybe overbathing and some of the skin products that are marketed at babies and children. This is one of our pet peeves here at The Journey because many of these products are alkaline, but as Professor Lack says, the skin is slightly acidic. So many products have the reverse effect when it comes to moisturizing the skin. We also have a whole range of harsh, harsh soaps and detergent used in clothes. Many people bathe their children once or more a day. And as Professor Lack said, it was unheard of previously to do it so much. So what about treating eczema? Can that help prevent allergy development? Professor Lack certainly said that prompt and intensive treatment of eczema early in order to reduce inflammation in the skin and reduce skin permeability is definitely not unhelpful. Now, of course, we're pretty obsessed with the microbiome and there is a lot of connection potentially with the development of eczema and allergy. So we asked him what he had to say. Now his view was that he's got no doubt it plays an important role, but at this stage it's not entirely clear about how. And he did say, obviously very correctly, it's incredibly complex. As Natasha Campbell McBride says um, on her whole podcast on the gut, it is an ecosystem within itself. And we don't know yet what is cause and what is effect. However, one thing he did see from my studies is that oral exposure as a route to reduce food allergies only worked um, in mice who actually had a full microbiome, so not in germ-free mice, which does suggest you do need a healthy micro, uh, gut microbiome. Now, what about breastfeeding? The current World Health Organization guidelines suggest exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. Yet the LEAP study and Professor Lack's most recent trials suggest exposing at-risk infants as young as three months old to oral allergies could be allergens could be the way forward. Now, Professor Lack's view is that the guidelines on breastfeeding have perhaps swung too far the other way. We're now perhaps not introducing solids early enough. So his point was when formula was invented, once again, we swung too far away from breastfeeding. Now we've almost had the reverse reaction swung too far opposite. Now in terms of the argument that the digestive tract is not developed enough to cope with solid food, he argues that the reality is that breast milk is very complex to digest. So 
His research has shown some compelling evidence that the introduction of allergens to at-risk infants, so those with severe eczema, for example, as early as three months old, has a significant impact on reducing the development of allergies. Now, what about premature babies? Should you work on an age-adjusted basis? Professor Lack said it's actually child-dependent. The child needs to be developed enough to swallow. At this point, however, they still don't know quite how much over what period of time in terms of exposure we need to actually prevent food allergy development. It is still going on, this type of research. Now, the LEAP study used about two to six grams per week of peanut exposure, just to give you a reference point. Now, up on the site, we've got a lot more about Professor Lack's work on the LEAP study and his most recent pioneering work on the EAT trial. Both showed significant benefit from early introduction of allergens to at-risk infants as young as three months. And in fact, just to give you some stats finally, when you looked at the group who were not treated of at-risk infants, 34% of them went on to develop an allergy versus just 19% of the group who had early introduction. When it came to a peanut allergy, 33% of the group who were not treated went on to develop a peanut allergy versus 14% of the early introduction group. And finally, nearly 50% of of the untreated group went on to develop an egg allergy versus just 20% of the early introduction group. So it really is very compelling. Now, of course, it goes without saying this is not something that you should handle on your own. If you are concerned that your child has a lot of eczema, there is family history of allergies within your family, the first port of call is to talk to your doctor. But there is definitely no harm in reminding them about Professor Lack's pioneering work and working together to come up with a plan. We hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast and we hope you uh, enjoyed and tune into next week. Bye.